listener note before we begin. We're launching a three-week Ask an Expert podcast series about all things free speech, online censorship and deplatforming, campus speech and cancel culture, and education and book bans. So here's where you come in. We want to answer your questions. What does the law say about social media companies deplatforming users? Does our constitution support cancel culture? If you have a question you'd like us to answer, call us and leave us a message at 212-549-2558 or email us at podcast at aclu.org. Okay, now on to the show. From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, the producer of this podcast. As we gear up to launch our free speech series, we want to revisit an important conversation with scholar and professor Kimberly Crenshaw about anti-racism education bans. We hope you enjoy this conversation between former At Liberty host Molly Kaplan and Kimberly Crenshaw. Lawmakers, parents, think tanks, and conservative pundits have waged a war over how to teach students about systemic racism. As a result, school board members have been ousted, and some educators have resigned over the death threats, social media bullying, and harassment they've received from those who are adamant that teaching a more inclusive history harms students. These activists and lawmakers have centered much of their anger on a framework called critical race theory. Though they've used it as a catch-all for wokeness, political correctness, and leftist indoctrination, the term actually refers to a body of legal scholarship from the 1970s and 80s that says racism is not just a result of individual prejudice, but something embedded in the legal system and in government policy. Our guest today, Kimberly Crenshaw, was among the scholars who developed the theory— She also coined the term intersectionality, a framework that takes into account how a person's identities combine to create unique forms of discrimination or privilege. She is a distinguished professor of law at Columbia University and at UCLA, co-founder of the African American Policy Forum at Columbia, and host of the podcast Intersectionality Matters. She joins us today to help us understand the true meaning of critical race theory and how it's become a political flashpoint in schools and beyond. Kimberly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I I wanted to start by calling out just how strange it is that so many states and activists are focused on banning a 40-year-old legal theory that's generally only taught at the higher education level, not in K-12, through where this battle is centered. You know, and when these activists invoke critical race theory, are they actually referring to the legal theory that you and others came up with? Uh, What is the difference (laughs) between what you know of as critical race theory and what they're pushing against? Well, thank you for for that question, because I have to tell you, for the most part, one of the reasons that this misinformation campaign has been so successful is that most reporters start by asking, 
what is it about critical race theory that has inspired so much anger? Um, so effectively, this campaign is it works because it casts a gaze upon us from a hostile, misinformed, intentionally divisive uh, focus, and then asks us to explain ourselves. <laughs> Look, the, the critical race theory that exists and that we were part of and that I helped to name and um, we worked for 30, 40 years to define has nothing to do with the defamatory framing that the right wing has utilized to create this hysteria uh, among parents and acrimony within school boards and a rollback in censorship among legislators across the country. This is a classic kind of disinformation propaganda campaign that comes from moments like these when a particular group of people have no agenda other than a fear-mongering, scapegoating agenda. So they use a framework that people don't really know much about, and they pour into it a whole range of racial grievances, discomforts, anxieties and say, this is the thing that is uh, going a uh, bump in the night. These are the things that are coming to get you. This is the thing that you need to mobilize around in order to save yourselves. This is a tried and true strategy. So the, the main thing I want people to do is consider the source, draw the connections, see where the funding is coming from, see where the contradictions are. These are people who are basically claiming to be about free speech, trying to say that there's certain speech you cannot hear. This is the definition of an authoritarian leaning kind of campaign. Now, we can certainly talk about what critical race theory is. It's important to know what it isn't, but also it's important to know critical race theory is just a way of seeing, recognizing, and understanding how racial inequality has been created and how it's continuously reproduced, even in a formally colorblind institution. Kimberly, can you give us an example in the real world of where we've seen critical race theory? If we want to understand the current patterns of wealth disparity, the fact that African-Americans have less than a quarter of the median net wealth that white families do. There are several different explanations. Some of them uh, would suggest that, well, uh, Black families don't work as hard or Black families don't have the same kind of values about how to acquire and uh, pass wealth down. That's the kind of story you would get if you did not understand history and you did not understand structural inequality, if you do understand structural inequality through a historical lens, you would know that the Federal Housing Authority actually spent more than $200 billion on creating white wealth, creating the suburbs, creating the highway system that linked the suburbs to jobs, and doing so in a racially discriminatory way. The federal government was one of the most powerful actors in creating segregation in the United States. Those patterns of segregation that were created in the 30s and 40s not only unfairly excluded African-Americans and other people of color from the huge advantages that were created by the federal housing, creation of housing stock, 
it extends those inequalities to this day. In fact, the wealth differences between black and white people who could and could not buy these homes in the 30s and 40s was was minimal back then. But when you take into account how much wealth accrues, how much most people's wealth come from comes from their uh, real estate and how that increases the disparity over time, then those decisions that were made in the 30s and 40s actually shape the social terrain more powerfully now than they did then. Mm -hmm. That's what you get when you understand contemporary racial inequalities. That's what you lose when you don't teach children about restrictive covenants. So these are pieces of the curriculum that students need to be exposed to. And these are precisely the pieces of the curriculum that many of these statutes and, and laws you know, across the country are targeting. We don't want our children to learn this stuff because it makes them feel bad. Well, this is a moment where the the legitimacy of what education includes shouldn't be measured by what it makes people feel. It's what they need to know to be informed citizens in a country that is still on a pathway to become a more perfect union. You can't be a more perfect union if you never learned what its imperfections were. I first wanted to ask where critical race theory came from. I mean, it didn't come out of thin air. What were you and others responding to or against that birthed the idea of critical race theory? Well, those of us who are the first generation or so of critical race theorists are students who were uh, the post-civil rights generation. We grew up as kids while the civil rights movement was unfolding. And many of us went to colleges and ultimately law school with the intention of joining the civil rights movement, picking up the baton and running our lap around the race. And when some of us got to Harvard Law School, there weren't active plans to integrate the curriculum, to bring into the teaching of law in that elite institution the implications of the transformative revolution in law that had occurred after Brown versus Board of Education. It was as though that was an afterthought. So our goal was to learn what we needed to learn about the relationship between law and racial uh, liberation, which meant we had to know about the relationship of law to racial subordination. And there were no courses that were offered to teach us that. So we began um, to share insights and drafts with each other, and ultimately became part of an intellectual tradition of asking questions about our our history. So if I understand correctly, you were fighting against the idea that the law was this neutral body. And if you just peeled away individual prejudice or um, discrimination, that we would then have at the core this perfect neutral law. And what you were saying is that there is no such thing as neutral law. Laws are written by people, um, and embedded in them is all the bias and discrimination that they have brought to it. Yes. And what's also embedded is modes of, of thinking and accepting the status quo 
as just the way it has to be. So our goal was to disrupt the belief that the status quo was in and of itself uh, racially benign or just the product of individual level capacity and talents or lack thereof. So once you take seriously the idea that we stand on ground that itself has been built on uh, white supremacy, that's been built on the history and traditions of segregation. So that's what, that's what our goal was in law. Now, those moves that have been made in law under critical race theory have also played out in other arenas as well as people begin to ask questions about education, about uh, politics, about the economy. What is this based on? What are the ways that its constant unequal dynamics refer back to the moments of its invention? And what do we do about that? So in a broad way, much of the critical thinking that has been activated anew after George Floyd is asking precisely those questions. George Floyd died not just because Derek Chauvin knelt on him for nearly nine minutes, but because Chauvin was in an institution that has traditionally been allowed to surveil and punish African-Americans going all the way back to the slave patrols. And it's precisely this kind of questioning that's fueling the backlash that these anti-CRT laws are facilitating. And I think one really important point about the theory is that if you are asking the right questions, you will come up with better solutions. The case of George Floyd and Derek Chauvin is really interesting because if you're asking the wrong questions, you know, I think many believe that you think the solution to that, uh, to that murder was just to hold Derek Chauvin accountable, to put him in prison. But I think many have started to wonder if that is actually the solution if Derek Chauvin is part of a systemic problem. And that is precisely what makes the right wing effort to demonize these kinds of questions so uh, frightening. I, I think so much of it is a performance of a certain kind of authoritarian approach. We don't like the questions that get asked because the answers to those questions cause us to have to rethink our commitments to maintaining institutions that over centuries have produced many of the same predictable racially discriminatory outcomes. So because we don't like some of the answers, we are going to attack the frameworks that present the questions. Any person who really cares about a democracy's capacity to constantly interrogate itself, to constantly improve itself, anyone who really believes that this is the core to democracy has to be outraged, frightened, and activated by this effort to ban specific ways of thinking, specific historical interrogations, specific schools of thought. And the very fact that the same people who are trying to ban these ideas are the same ones who, on the other hand, are complaining about wokeness, 
who are saying that they're being silenced while they're trying to silence an entire group of thinkers and an entire group of activists and an entire group of legislators, an entire group of voters, that huge contradiction is 1984 on steroids. Exactly. And people have proposed, to your point about silencing and surveillance, putting body cameras on teachers, on teachers. to make sure that they aren't teaching critical race theory. And let's remember, these are the same people who do not support putting body cameras on police officers right. who are taking people's lives. So this should just give people a sense. I said earlier, consider the source. This is an extension of a Trumpist undermining of our democracy. I've said on many occasions, what is happening is that they're putting a pillow over the head of our democracy and trying to distract people and confuse people by pointing to the racial others. You know, now it's the critical race theorists. Earlier in time, there there were other others that- Marxism. Exactly. That this Jim Crow cohort is basically trying to project attention on to ignore that they're killing our democracy. So uh, freedom-loving people, even if they've never read a word of critical race theory in their lives, even if they too are uncomfortable about some of the questions that are raised by critical thinking about race, even if some things they oppose, they've got to know that they are on the side of resisting this effort to limit our ability to think, talk, and act in ways to perfect our democracy. And it's not just the source, right? It's the timing. I mean, the timing is not accidental. The timing was directly after the summer of protest, the response to the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and so many others. And this is a, you know, two steps forward for progress. And then there is a backlash. You know, two steps forward, one step back, or worse still, sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. So if we think about this as being a pattern, we'd have to go back to Reconstruction and recognize that Reconstruction lasted giving equal rights to the freedmen. And even that, even saying that freedmen should have the same rights as white people was framed by the president of the time and right-wing redeemers as too much uh, given to African-Americans, even reverse discrimination against white people to give African-Americans the same rights as white people. So if you could make an argument on the eve of the end of slavery, that giving African-Americans equal rights is reverse discrimination, it's taking something away from white people. If you could do that then, you can do it again and again and again across history. And that's exactly what we saw happening at the end of the classic civil rights movement that was sort of framed as reverse discrimination. That's what we saw in the 90s when efforts to really integrate institutions across the country with diversity policies, affirmative action policies, were framed as reverse discrimination against white people. It's what's happening now after a summer of racial reckoning. We have this reversal that actually may end up being more powerful because it is taking place within law. And it's actually saying certain things cannot be said 
because they constitute reverse discrimination. So this is a deepening cycle that we've seen over and over again that has to be stopped. You know, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the point about reverse discrimination because Christopher Rufo, who's the conservative filmmaker who, you know, credits himself with having activated Trump on this issue, you know, he said that racism exists. Yes, it does. But that the real racists are the teachers spreading critical race theory. And I'm just sort of curious, you know, in your work, what have you learned about why morality is always the battleground? Well, you know, I think morality is the battleground here, partly because the grand tradition of the civil rights movement was one that sought to lift up the moral imperative of a society that is true to its claims. You know, the March on Washington speech that Martin Luther King gave is cited so many times by the right wing, by the, you know, Christopher Rufo types to basically say that colorblindness is race neutral and color consciousness, race consciousness, telling these histories, understanding the structured ways that inequality uh, represents and, and reproduces itself. Th- those storytellers are the real racists. They're the ones that are morally bankrupt. And in case you don't believe us, just ask Martin Luther King, because that's what he said in his March on Washington speech. Well, And worth noting that that argument is also coming out of the Supreme Court. I mean, Chief Justice exactly. John Roberts has said something very similar as it relates to affirmative action. And to, to get beyond race, you have to stop talking about race. That's, that's effectively how the Supreme Court has embedded the specious argument. But if you actually, you know, go to the tape and, and listen to Martin Luther King's speech, even then, much less read his books from chaos to community, like where do we go from here? He was saying absolutely that we must confront the fact that a society that has done for centuries laws, policies, practices against a racial group cannot think itself as being neutral when it simply does nothing to dismantle those things. The whole point of the March on Washington was one in which he said there's this huge contradiction between the promises of the 14th Amendment and the realities. It's like you guys gave us a rubber check that came back marked insufficient funds. We're here to demand payment on that promise. We're going to protest with our feet. We're moving where the truth takes us, not where the propaganda would misdirect us. And to the point about propaganda, it feels like it's also not an accident that they are invoking an academic framework that feels a little bit hard to to grasp. Like they, they purposefully did not say we don't want our children to learn about racial bias in school. They say we don't want our children to learn about critical race theory. It could be yes. anything. It could be anything. And, and and let's be clear, you know, they were looking for a way to galvanize the anxieties and the grievances that were relatively muted during the summer of the Great Reckoning. Um, and it was hard to come up with something that would stick. You can't say we're pro-killing George Floyd, right? You can't say we're pro you know, racist. You can't say, you know, we're pro 
division. They, they couldn't say that. So, you know, m- most of the messages that are embedded in this anti-CRT thing, we've heard before. It's just that there wasn't a Trojan horse that was powerful enough. It's a seek and destroy. This is what the far right has been saying for a long time. This is proud boy you know, uh, kind of ideology. How do you bring that far right kind of ideology into the center in a way that obscures what the mobilization is all about? Well, you go out and find something and then you pour this content into it. We have to understand how they've arrived at this and why it is working. And it feels really important to note that this casting efforts to address discrimination and implicit bias and systemic issues is not just happening in the field of race, that it's also happened in our state legislatures on other topics relating to reproductive health, relating to transgender rights. And it feels, you know, you've obviously studied and developed intersectionality. This seems like a relevant point. Well, let's broaden the entire cultural war. They have taken every issue that disrupts the satisfaction and comfort of of white, Christian, male, cis, straight, you know, America, and said, look, we are all in the same boat together. They're coming for all of us. This wokeness will undermine all of our of our expectations. So this aggression that from our side we're seeing is thought by them to be self-defense. And we know that sometimes the worst forms of political violence, the most scary steps along the road to fascism actually happens when it's framed as we're doing this to defend the people, to defend the history, to defend the core of who we are. So they've been able to mobilize together, despite their various differences, on this idea that we've got to hang together. And I think another piece of this sort of, you know, the right wing's um, ability to control the narrative is also about being really good at casting heroes and villains. You know, a lot of the the dramas we have around war. And I think that's sort of, you know, where you come in with these frameworks. Like, let's just look at this differently. Let's question. But I think also at the heart of this is a fundamental disagreement about how productive reckoning is. You know, Mm -hmm. is it corrosive or is it productive? I mean, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis banned critical race theory from being covered in Florida's public schools because it was teaching kids to hate their country and to hate each other. You know, what would you say to those who believe that the truth will divide us rather than bring us together? You know, it reminds me, honestly, of how the defenders of segregation used to denounce the Freedom Riders as divisive. The entire civil rights movement was framed by the South as outside agitators who were coming in and disrupting their way of life. The the entire segregationist heritage was framed as uh, just culture. And these external efforts were themselves designed to stir up acrimony and hatred. And of course, they would point to the violence of the Ku Klux Klan, the numbers of people who were beaten, maimed, and killed as evidence of 
the violence that's caused by integration, not the violence that's caused by segregation. Because the Ku Klux Klan was cast as the heroes, the militia, the protectors, exactly. the patriots. Exactly. And and a peace that's based on oppression was defended as neutral and natural. And the disruption that was a product of justice seeking was seen as the the problem, the gateway to violence. We're basically in a similar moment in that what discomforts they are comfortable with are the inferences that you you gather when you don't know our racial history. So when you ask, as I said earlier, you know why why is it that the uh, median net wealth is so disparate? If you don't know this history, you basically end up blaming people of color for for where they are in the social economic system. Now, the discomfort that that causes is perfectly okay, because that's a discomfort that is consistent with and and reproduced within a society that is, frankly, a post-slavery and post-genocidal society. And the question is, are we going to try to learn more about it? In order to know how to think about it, how to intervene in it, how to fix it, or are we just going to take it as a given with all of the stereotypes, all of the racism, cultural and otherwise, that are embedded in the existing system? So when, when the DeSantis of the world say, this teaches us to hate America, I say, no, this teaches us to see what America has been to better understand how we can make America what we want it to be. Frankly, the ones that I think disdain America are the ones that think America is too fragile to confront what America has been, too defensive to understand how the policies have continued to wreak havoc, and not trusting enough in our own constitution to take its promises seriously. I think we are the true Americans because we believe in the project. They are not the true Americans because they're willing to cover up what the sins are because they don't think we have the capacity to do the right thing. So if I understand correctly, what you would say to somebody who does not want to feel shame or discomfort with this kind of, you know, reckoning with our past is to trust if you really want to be patriotic, if you really believe in the foundations, then trust in them and actually be a part of realizing them fully because we haven't. And of course, to recognize that we believe in this society, justice is earned. Democracy is earned. Freedom is earned. We didn't just inherit it. We had to fight for it. We have to continue to fight for it. Like any other social problem or health problem, to close your eyes to the problem doesn't make the problem go away. I often tell people, let's think about the fact that we are, you know, a society that that built asbestos into our institutions. It's everywhere. We discovered it was the wrong thing to do. But did we respond to that by saying, well, now the solution to the fact that we embedded asbestos everywhere is not to use the word asbestos, not to see (laughs) asbestos, not to have tools to find where it is in the infrastructure, and definitely not to allow people to learn how to get rid of it. That would be ridiculous 
Yet that's precisely what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're what we're inferring from the idea that to talk about race, to see racism, to understand how it functions is to be racist. That's exactly the same kind of ridiculous argument. We wouldn't do it with asbestos. We shouldn't do it when it comes to racism. Do you think in in some very weird way that the backlash against critical race theory is in some small way a sign of progress? That if people are feeling this uncomfortable, that in some ways maybe the hard work is, is we're getting there in some way? Well, sure. You know, it was a, a set of concepts that people, you know, were toiling, you know, tirelessly around for, for generations. And yes, the fact that it's now at the center of political discourse, one could see as it made inroads. But let me also have this voice of caution. The end of Reconstruction, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, redemption, was all a reaction to the fact that multiracial democracies were moving forward, that coalitions between African-American farmers and poor white farmers were actually producing policies that actually benefited everybody. So it is the case that forward momentum, when it breeds the backlash, does say, well, you know, dogs don't bark at parked cars. We were moving somewhere. But it also doesn't tell us that the forward momentum is inevitable. Backlashes can sometimes last longer than the forward momentum. And we have to be aware of that. In fact, one of the biggest challenges I think for liberals and progressives is recognizing that the right wing doesn't win just because they overpower our righteous resistance. It wins because many times we don't resist to the extent and at the level and at the pace that we should. So Reconstruction ended not because the Redeemers were able to to fully enact coups across the South, but when they enacted the coups, the North allowed them to happen. They stopped resisting. The Jim Crow faction is going to take it to the mat, even to the point of breaking this country. The question is, will we allow it? And we need to yell and scream and protest and vote in greater numbers and at higher registers than those who are trying to defeat our democracy. And worth noting that midterms are not that far away. It's all about the midterms. All about the midterms. If we've learned nothing else, I'm recalling 2010 after Obama, we were supposedly in a post-racial society and then 2010 midterms happened. That's one of the reasons why, you know, we we have been trying so hard to to work with uh, many of our allies. It's why we have a Truth Be Told campaign that people can learn more about. They need to see what's happening, understand what it's about, tell everyone they know, demystify what this outrage is about and become outraged about what they are trying to do. And where can people find that resource? So they can go to aapf.org, that's aapf for African American Policy Forum.org, backslash truth be told. There you can get information about how this legislation is running through the country uh, like wildfire. Parents 
uh, school board uh, members, teachers can get talking points and messaging about what critical race theory is and isn't, why it's important to teach history honestly in our schools and how they can partner with others who are trying to defend teachers, parents, and our democracy. So it's truth be told uh, at aapf.org. And while we're at it, or while people are looking up that resource, I'd also recommend checking out your podcast, Intersectionality Matters, which is so good. And I listened to so much of it in preparation for this, and I will continue to listen. Wonderful. So, Kimberly, thank you. thank you. Thank you so much for this. This was such an exciting conversation. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. We wanted to leave you with some very specific resources. If you want to learn more, join Kimberly Crenshaw and AAPF next week, August 10th through August 14th, for the second annual Critical Race Theory Summer School. You can apply at aapf.org through Saturday, August 7th. Then, on August 27th through the 29th, Black Lives Matter at School, the Zinn Education Project, and AAPF will hold a national call to action around hashtag truth be told. Join them in resisting efforts to center racial and gender justice education, ban protest, and suppress votes. There isn't a moment to lose. Until next week, stay strong.